0: everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis back again with you with uh, Advent Christian Voices and um, taking us through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, been tagging along with us. We have been uh, running through the third chapter and uh, we're finishing. Well, we'll have another week on that uh, and then uh, we'll be into the fourth. But we're in the middle of the third chapter. In fact, uh, we, we just have a Maybe four verses that we're covering this week. Um, so maybe I should just read to you, get get you up to speed, if if you're if you'd like to uh, stay tuned in with us. Okay, so um, verse. I'm just going to read from verse 18 through 22, talking about John the Baptist. And uh, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and his voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Okay, that pretty much covers the text that I'll have time to look at today. And I'll, as we mentioned last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist through the eyes of the historian Luke here. And But, you know, were we to compare all the things written in all the Gospels, as well as the extra biblical writings about John, then we'd... Uh, we'd have to spend a considerable more time reviewing all the details. It was used of God to expose the sins committed by those in high places such as Herod in his adulterous and incestuous, incestuous affair actually with Herodias and for which John had been imprisoned and later even executed, beheaded to be precise, by Herod. But since Luke does not at this juncture at least spend any more time dealing With John on those matters, neither will we more than to say that the uh, fiery preachers, John's criticism of John Herod is an example to us. Um, I believe John the Baptist was uh, described as being uh, Elijah in a sense. So Elijah also was similar in that regard in in his criticism of the then uh, leader of the nation of Israel, uh, Ahab, I believe it was at the time, and also John being a prophet, um, like the prophet Nathan uh, was willing to criticize those in positions of power. But it's also an example to us of what God expects from those who claim to represent him. In other words, it puts the lie to those who claim to say, I'm just a preacher of the gospel, and it's not my job to get too political, or I'm not involved in politics, nonsense, Uh, When I was in seminary, I can remember attending a sermon by John Montgomery Boyce, uh, the late famous John Montgomery Boyce at 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia one evening when he himself expressed uh, some distaste for one of the political choices on the ballot at that year. But for that, he was severely criticized by certain students of straying beyond the jurisdiction which was appropriately, they thought, his behind the pulpit. To that I must say as adamantly as I can, hogwash, whoever believes it is diluted, as diluted as any I can think of. There's no part of our lives that are not completely covered by the gospel, and politics is in fact a very real part, of what God calls us to be even more accountable for actually than was the case with anyone living in Judea at the time these things were written. At that time they were not living in a democracy as we do today, and they were living under a despotic dictatorship. So John's rebuke of Herod, by the way, was not even a Jew, demonstrates very clearly that even under those circumstances, God expects us to do or to use whatever influence we may have in expressing his displeasure really against sin wherever it occurs, whether publicly or privately. But furthermore, because we live in a democracy, we of all people will definitely be held accountable by for the ballots, for instance, that we cast. You know what really amazes me is how anyone who belongs to the, at least from a national perspective, the Democratic Party in our nation in this day and age could actually have the audacity to claim, and many do, to be Christians. Or could be so diluted, in my opinion, as to think that they're included among those who will inherit eternal life. At the judgment seat of christ you know i've got news for you if that's the case in the bible is not the word of god the last time i checked it appeared to me that the uh, national democratic party at least has made for instance quote the inconvenience or the convenience rather i should say of the mother to be of supreme consideration when juxtaposed against the most vulnerable lives of their pre-born children thus endorsing in my opinion, the most indiscriminate and extreme case of mass genocide to ever occur in the history of mankind. You know, the last time I checked, it appeared to me that according to the National Democratic Party's platform on the holy institution created by God, endorsed by Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we, the institution we call marriage, defined incidentally, biblically, is between none other than one husband and one wife. Has no purpose, no meaning, no authority apart from the completely arbitrary dictates of the state to determine, despite its very foundational role in having held together the very fabric of our human society and providing for the nurture of our progeny ever since the very beginning of time. Last time I checked, the platform for the National Democratic Party cannot even allow us to distinguish between the most fundamental and rudimentary components of our basic nature makeup and identity as human beings created in the image of god as men and women anyone who today would not be utterly repulsed by such a prescription for our presumed progress or to go so far as to endorse this kind of platform is a perfect example of what jesus would refer to as being blind and living in utter darkness so yes i agree the preacher of the gospel today has many very good reasons and even a very clear mandate and urgent duty to speak as vociferously as possible against not just those in this so-called national uh, Democratic Party, but anyone in any position of authority in our nation, whether democratic, republican, independent, or what, would be even willing to sit idly by and tolerate such policies as they propose because they're really just as guilty and they have just as much blood on their hands if they were ever in a position to oppose or expose those policies for what they really are and didn't do everything in their power to do so. Well, I could go on and on regarding our civic duties from a biblical perspective. The main point here is that we have them and we need to assume them. We are after all the salt and light of the world, without which its decay and demise would be very rapid. So to not let our voices be heard under these circumstances is tantamount in my opinion to really cowardice and and it's disgraceful. So let's follow our example of John the Baptist, the first martyr, really, for the cause of Christ. If that's what it takes, then we should be encouraged by the word of God, which promises a special crown for those whose lives were were taken on account of their witness. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. were the words, I believe, of Christ whenever you suffer persecution on account of him, for such was the case with the prophets before you. And believe me, the world hasn't changed that much since then, in terms of its depravity, unless it may be said to actually have sunk further down into that, if that's possible. Therefore, we should expect such persecution. Indeed, Paul writes that it's actually impossible to live godly lives without encountering it, without suffering persecution. But he goes on to say that we need not let that a concern us, for we will be amply compensated and rewarded for any such injustices meted out against us. In fact, he says that we will be glorified with Christ at the resurrection, but only if we have been willing to suffer with him as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that if you take those words very seriously, you're not going to be so likely to allow yourself to be intimidated or cowered into silence when you have opportunities to speak up against those injustices. Peter says we should be ready to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope that is within us. I think what Luke is telling us here and providing this testimony of the life of John the Baptist and especially in his death or his imprisonment here is that we should also speak out whenever we encounter an injustice and we don't need to look very far to find them. Just go to any abortion clinic. Well, Luke doesn't concern himself at this point so much with strict chronology of these accounts because in the following verses, that is after John was murdered, he describes in part the Baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. And we know he was baptized by John on that occasion. So John had to be alive and out of prison. And that occurred probably at least a year, if not a year and a half, prior as his imprisonment, prior to his martyrdom. But as we've seen previously in the first two chapters of Luke, he is intentionally weaving the accounts of the Baptist John's life at the beginning with those of Jesus. And from here on out, he has pretty much concluded his comments. On John and we will be focusing almost exclusively on Jesus although later in chapter 7 the Baptist is mentioned again as sending out disciples to Jesus from prison to inquire as to whether he's really the Messiah so since he was apparently wondering at that time about when he would be delivered apparently or he Jesus would be delivering the nation and executing the judgment on sinners that John had been sent to forecast and warn about he's also mentioned since Herod was apparently paranoid this was after his death about the possibility of his rising from the dead since when hearing about the miracles of Jesus, whom he had yet to meet, uh, and this was told apparently, he was told apparently that was as a result of John's resurrection from the dead. And that news was later related relayed to Jesus by his disciples when he asked them about who they thought he was or who, they, who others thought he was. In our passage for today, Luke simply describes the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, which probably took place about six months after John had already begun his public ministry. And we could elaborate, by including what we know from the other accounts of the Gospels. And John tried, for instance, to dissuade Jesus, claiming that he was one rather than Jesus of need of being baptized. Obviously, if John recognized the divine nature of Jesus, that would certainly be true. But nonetheless, Jesus shows up one day after having apparently taken off his carpenter's apron, dusting it off, laying it aside, and then trekking the 70 plus miles down from Galilee to the Jordan in Judea, to wait in line and be baptized by John. Jesus certainly did not have any need to be baptized by John or anybody else on, that, on account of any sins he had committed and wished to repent of since he had no sin. But like The prophet Daniel of old, he was nonetheless willing to identify with and be identified with his people who desperately needed God's forgiveness and cleansing, and hence who desperately needed to repent of their sin, of which this act of baptism was but a symbolic outward and public gesture, signifying the humbling of oneself which such repentance required. Paul writes in his epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, of this humbling nature of Christ who Being in all respects and appearances equal to God without considering equality with God as anything in need of being grasped, and yet yet who emptied himself and taking on the form of a slave, being found in the likeness, born uh, in the likeness of men and found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so, on account of that, God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is about a of every other name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess Him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is this striking humility of Christ is demonstrated for us again and again in His life, in just about everything He says and does. And it's precisely in those deeds and acts in which that is most exemplified, such as in His willingness here to submit to baptism, that there's this counteracting response by His Father in Heaven. In this case. It's through having the sky ripped open, the visible ascension of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove to a light, I suppose, on his shoulders, and the audible booming voice coming out of heaven itself, declaring him, Jesus, that is, publicly, as his dearly beloved son. We should also note that this passage, when read in parallel with the other accounts of this incident, indicates that Jesus literally went into the Jordan River, And was submerged under its surface before emerging and stepping out out of the water, having been essentially completely immersed. And because of this, because the word baptism itself in Greek can sometimes mean to immerse, although it's not, frankly, the typical Greek word meaning to immerse, which happens to be bapto, but because nonetheless of this, they assume that immersion is the only acceptable mode of baptism. And actually immersion is. Very common and a very acceptable form of baptism. But I'd argue that the reason Jesus was immersed in his own baptism was far more important than merely to suggest that it's the only mode that is acceptable. In fact, the real reason for Jesus to do so was so much more important, than merely such a suggestion, that it would seem to me to make that suggestion, frankly, a moot point and therefore not really necessary at all. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at what is really happening here. Let's picture it in our minds. As Jesus comes up out of the water, which must have been dripping off and the sun shining down upon him, and suddenly the canvas of the sky is torn back, the Holy Spirit appears in the form of a hovering dove. We don't know if it actually alighted on him, but although certainly that is generally assumed, or that it simply continued to hover above his head. But then, out of the blue, we hear this booming thunderous voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, what does that remind you of, if anything, from a biblical perspective? It's actually a perfect picture of the creation account, as recorded for us in the first two chapters of Genesis, when God first spoke into existence the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was the abyss, the face of the deep, which was covered with darkness and over which the spirit hovered. God said, let there be light. And there was light. So here, Jesus, who is the light of the world, is surrounded by darkness, descends into the water, and then comes up out of it. In the beginning, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry ground appear. Well, in the beginning, God formed the dry ground into the form of a man, into which he then breathed the breath of life, and he became a man, the first, or the became a living soul, the first man called Adam, since he was taken out of the ground. Well, if we examine the picture created in our minds of how this happens, what we see, you know, basically what always happens whenever there's been a shower or rainy day and when the sun comes out and things begin to dry up, water levels begin to drop. And the dry ground begins to appear. It comes up out of the water. And this is a picture we get when we imagine how it was when it says that God gathered the waters, waters together into one place and the dry ground began to appear. It was as if there was the appearance of dry ground coming up out of the water as the water actually receded. And while well, this is the same image we see as we imagine Jesus coming up out of the water, it was the land from which God created the first man, Adam. But It was from the water that the ground appeared to come up out of. So what we have here is a picture of the creation account, which Jesus, with Jesus being, in fact, the second Adam. You Remember, the first Adam was created as an adult. Jesus is qualified to fill his shoes, apparently, in the eyes of God the Father, since he is now an adult. And the imagery of his baptism in the Jordan is what would we would call a recreation scenario. There are, in fact, many recreation scenarios in the Old Testament. There was the flood in Noah's day when God began the whole human race anew from the seed of Noah. And the same imagery is provided when Noah himself is, ho- is hovering in a sense over the face of the deep in the ark. And later we get the release of the dove, in fact, from the ark, which flies back and forth, hovering over the deep, returning to the ark. Same imagery could be said to be involved in the appearance of the land gradually receding, which uh, has the the waters having executed God's judgment at that time upon mankind. We have another recreation scenario in the deliverance of Israel, the hand of Moses through the Red Sea. Returned and by the way we have, uh, I believe it is in Deuteronomy 32 or something. We also have that same imagery, of a dove hovering over. But at that time they had the, the presence of God hovering over them in the form of a cloud by day and a fire by night. Other recreation scenarios include the carrying off of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines during the time of Judges, when Phineas was the high priest, or the destruction of the temple. Or the carrying off of the people of Israel into Babylonian captivity and their restoration seventy years later. One could even say that the destruction of the temple and the obliteration of the nation of Israel, which didn't occur until later in seventy A.D. under the Romans, and the rise of Christianity in the first century was a type recreation scenario, since it was a forecast or it was forecast, I should say, in the Old Testament in Daniel nine twenty six and twenty eight, and that in that. Uh, Prophecy that the the destruction itself was likened to a flood. But in this case, uh, the, the imagery is reinforced. In the case of Jesus' baptism, it's reinforced by Luke by what immediately follows in this account, where he gives the chronology of Jesus through the lineage of Mary, in which he goes all the way back. Adam. but Instead of stopping there he goes back again further calling Adam the son of God. So it would appear that Luke is going out of his way to bring about this imagery which anyone familiar with the Old Testament would immediately recognize as being a recreation scenario so that Jesus is being portrayed as a type of Adam and like Adam in the beginning at least before the fall. There was the opportunity given to earn through good works the reward of eternal life or immortality as long as he remained the position of good standing with his heavenly father. First Adam, as you may recall, lost that standing when he rebelled and disobeyed the commandment of God to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, in the case of Jesus, just in the case, in case there may be any doubt about that standing since although he was born sinless, through the conception of the Holy Spirit without any genealogical uh, makeup that could trace him back to Adam, it had still been some 30 years since then. We're not told very much about the way he has conducted his life. So we may not know that, but we can be certain that God knows and that he knew. And that may be one reason why God made that very plain at the baptism through his announcement during the prayers of Jesus, that his standing in his heavenly father's eyes was still perfectly intact. So at this point, Jesus resembles the first Adam in his pre fallen sinless condition, and as such, may or actually did then have the same opportunity which Adam had in the beginning to earn for himself as a man the right to inherit eternal life through his demonstration of devotion, loyalty, and obedience to the word of God through a period of probation. He, in fact, is the only man, aside from Adam initially, who could ever be said to have been offered such an opportunity since. All of Adam's offspring were already under righteous condemnation by virtue of their connection. And we all owe our lives to our first father. So we can only say that our lives are no more than that he had to give to us. No more than what he had to give or could offer us, which was a life under the just and righteous condemnation of God. Hence, we're in no position to ever attempt to earn through good works, any merit or favor in God's eyes. So we remember that in the beginning, everything God created was good, and that included, of course, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that was in the midst of the garden. Therefore, it's right to conclude that that tree was designed to have its fruit consumed eventually by its inhabitants of the garden at the appropriate time. That is, when it was ripe for that purpose, only that Adam hedged on that time constraint and hence failed to win the prize that would have otherwise been his. Notice what this implies about Adam, in other words, he was not immortal, that there was no part of Adam or component of his being, so many are wont to say, that has in itself immortality. If so, then there was no point in giving him a period of probation during which time he may have earned it. And so since he failed in his probation, he lost forever the opportunity he once had to earn for himself the right to possess immortality. Since Jesus came into the world to assume the position which Adam once had, that would mean he also, at least from his human perspective, would have had a period of probation during which time he may have the opportunity to earn for himself through his meritorious behavior, the gift of immortality. This indeed we see was the fact. It was in fact the immediate action Taken by Jesus, once the the declaration of the father made publicly at his baptism, that he was his dearly beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. This, by the way, was followed immediately in Luke, right after Mary's lineage, which is taken back to Adam as the son of God, that we have the narrative of Christ in the wilderness, which was again another picture of Adam. Only this time, rather than being in a lush, exquisite garden where every conceivable need was met with superfluous abundance and immediate response, Jesus was compelled by the spirit to go somewhere that could easily be described, be described as the most barren and inhospitable terrain on the planet instead of having every imaginable uh, whim of one's culinary delight satisfied in a moment's notice, Jesus was compelled to go without any physical sustenance whatsoever for a period of 40 full days and nights. The other gospels fill in some of the details explaining that Jesus was among the wild animals, which was another allusion, by the way, to the Garden of Eden, Adam's role in naming the animals. And by the way, that was another feature of a second recreation account we mentioned with Noah uh, as well, when God wiped out the entire human race and began all over again also brought in with him all the animals at that time, so we know that God cares for the animals, and after their and their suffering he cares about them. and all of this is really it falls entirely on the shoulders of first Adam, since he was given the authority to govern over them in the beginning, and his governance wasn't a failure, but only because he failed to trust God, just like Adam Jesus was put to the test, although under far more severe and strict conditions. Unlike Adam, however, Jesus passed the test with flying colors, never succumbed to any of Satan's deceptions or temptations. We'll get into that later uh, in a couple weeks. But even to the point of starvation there in the desert, and we know that because once he had succeeded in resisting everything that Satan was able to throw at him, he was so weak physically, he was not even able to feed himself. And that's why it says the angels had to come and minister To him to restore his strength. The point of all this is that Jesus succeeded in passing the test of what may be said to have been offered to the original Adam only on a condensed scale because it was done in only 40 days instead of, in Adam's case, what may have taken several years. The severity of it had to be intensified in order to make it comparable. In any case, Jesus won the battle even under the most severe conditions. And as such was the only man to ever have lived who earned for himself the right to immortality through his obedience. And as such, he was the only person ever who lived, also who was in a position to offer himself in exchange for those who could not afford. They no longer could do anything to free themselves out from under the enslavement they found themselves in under the tyranny of Satan and death itself, ultimately because of God's righteous judgment. Scripture says for anyone who is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Why? Because Jesus was the only one in a position to offer himself in their behalf. He actually did offer himself in their behalf when he went to the cross in their stead. That freedom is now available to any who will simply call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon him now before it's too late if you have yet to do so. Well, that brings us to the end of the time we have today uh, for this message. Uh, Please leave any comments or questions uh, that you have, and uh, I'll be happy to respond to them. But let me just say a quick prayer before I conclude this broadcast. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Help us to receive that gift and to open that gift through our simple childlike faith. In Jesus, and help us to tell others also. Need to receive it as well, through the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray, Amen. Well, that concludes our broadcast for today. For today, this is Kim Nikolides off with Advent Christian Voices. Bless you all.